Well, let's get back to our study. Um, We're doing a study on the state of the church. And we're doing it from the pastoral letters. Um, Tried to do this, um, that is 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Uh, Try to do this uh, once a year, just to take a step back. And, um, you know, know, one of the things it allows us to do is to remind us of the core of the things that we believe and really then to take the core of the things that we believe and to to put it as a, I guess, as a, a little outline across the culture and of what's going on out there in our nation, in the world. And to see, first of all, it tells us there's a big difference, but to also just remind us of what we should be about. And the, it's almost like a call back to to doing what we should do, being what we're all about. Now, we made the point that when Paul wrote these letters to these two men that he trained as pastors, that he was really warning them of an attack. I mean, we showed you the seven challengers to the church. Now, an attack on the church is really an attack on God. An attack on Christians is an attack on the church, which is an attack on God. You remember we said the way to respond to an attack like this was to remember how the gospel works and to remember how the church works. How the gospel works and how the church works. And we were working our way through that and we're still kind of working through how the gospel works. Now, Jesus told us the world would try to shake you up. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised by trials. First Peter 4 says, not by suffering, which should we be surprised by? We should not be surprised by any kind of attack on the church and on ourselves as Christians. Now, watch this. John 15, verse 19. Jesus said, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Now let me say that again. But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Now I hope you caught what he said. The world hates you as a Christian. It hates you, listen, because Jesus chose you. That's what it says. In other words, it hates you because of how God saves you. Paul said in Acts 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Shepherd the church of God, he said. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's, there's going to be an attack on you, he said. Just like Jesus said, there's going to be an attack, and it will come from the outside, like Jesus said, and it will come from the inside too, like Paul has, has said to that church there in Ephesus in Acts 20. And I tell you, beloved, we are seeing it. We are seeing it. We are seeing it. I mentioned to the class this morning, uh, there is just a wave of people that have called themselves Christians that are now apostate and they're all trying to cast a dark cloud and dispersion against Christianity and against the God of the Bible. And they're bringing a barrage of attack against the church. The world thinks Christianity is narrow-minded and closed off and rigid and dangerous and unbending and anti-humanity and it has had enough with our doctrines. And then along comes the woke stuff from the last two years and the world has lured in the church to embrace its ideas. And so it is both John 15 and Acts 20 right now as we speak and where you sit. So what can be done? What do we do? 
Well, you say, well, maybe we have to make sure we get the right man to become president. Or the right people in the Senate. Or in the House. We've got to get that thing to be the majority on this certain side. Or maybe we just need a governor that can do, you know, can really be helpful to us. No. No, that's not the Lord's answer. Paul's answer to Timothy in the pastoral letters sounds like this. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me with me, he says, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's like that's a title, the gospel according to the power of God. What is the answer? We have to be willing to join Paul in suffering for this. The gospel according to the power of God. What is the gospel according to the power of God? It is the gospel of sovereign grace. And that's what we've been reminding you of. So how do you face attack? Remember the gospel of sovereign grace and how it works. Why? Because that tells us that God gets His people into His true church to make a statement that He is stronger than sin. And along the way, the Lord then saves others through our commitment to that gospel as we proclaim it and as we live it out. The gospel of sovereign grace. The gospel of sovereign grace is how we got into the church. So this is really a message about joining Paul and Jesus in suffering for the gospel. Well, you can't do that if you don't understand how the gospel works. So, five points. Five points we have for you. These are the same five points that originated from 1618. And I say originated, actually, they were just restating the five points that the church had long believed in. Now, maybe it wasn't five that the church uh, believed in, but they summarized them with these five points. The same points. So this, they, by the way, they made these points at the Synod of Dort, and, and these are the same points that Augustine made to Pelagius almost 2,000 years ago. And what I want you to see this morning is that these points, they come from Scripture. These are the points that Paul used to encourage uh, the men that he trained so that they could encourage the churches. And also, these points are like, like dominoes. You knock the first one over and the rest fall into place. So the first one is the crucial one. It is, so let's take a look at it and remind ourselves as we've already really studied it. Point number one, the requirement for the gospel. Now why do we need a gospel of sovereign grace? In the 400s, Pelagius said, we don't really. The gospel of sovereign grace is for the ones I mean, I mean, Pelagius said, no, actually, we don't really need a gospel of sovereign grace. And maybe it's for you people that can't really see your way. But what Pelagius said is that we all are capable in our own humanity to find God. To get Him. Later, the semi-Pelagius came around and said, no, no, man isn't good enough to do that on his own. He needs help, and that's why God gave every man this little spark of life in him. Just enough to choose him. And so Pelagius said, all people are good, they just need to work at getting the thing that they know they need. Semi-Pelagius said, no, 
What they need is a little help. Man is sort of wobbly. And he needs to just be, you know, knocked upright. Come to his senses. That became known as prescient grace or even prevenient grace. But Augustine and Luther and Calvin and other men like them came around and said, no, that, that's, that's, not exi- that's not what the apostles taught. They taught what R.C. Sproul called radical corruption. Total depravity, but I like calling it radical corruption. I, I, I'm just borrowing his word there. That was good stuff. The word radical comes from the Latin radix, And that word radix means root. In other words, what R.C. Sproul was saying was at the root, man is corrupt. Like that little leaven in the loaf that gets in. Remember when Jesus said this? And he made a positive point about the kingdom about in this Matthew 13. When he said the kingdom of God is like leaven that gets in and and gets through and the whole thing is affected. You know, this week some of you might be making bread for Thanksgiving. Amen. And when you do that, of course, you want that yeast to be in there so that that thing rises and it becomes good bread. And we know that a little can pervade and infect or effect the whole. This is what is meant by radical corruption or total depravity. That is that man, because of sin, sin is pervaded so that it affects everything. And that's the reason why James 3 said, your mouth, you know, needs to be caged up. Your lips set on course by the fires of hell, it says. Where did that come from? Isaiah, remember that? He closes, covered his mouth. Woe is me. I'm a man of ruin. Isaiah was a good guy. Isaiah had it going in the right direction. This is a guy that was a standout righteous man. And yet he said, woe is me. Get me out of here. He was in heaven. He wanted to leave heaven. Why? I'll just ruin this thing. The Lord Jesus, when he called Simon Peter, and Peter could see his power, he said, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Why are you saying that, Peter? You're a good guy. Because he, he recognized everything about me is infected or impacted by the sin that I have, and I can't get it away from me. It's like that cartoon character Venom, you know, that has the stuff and can't get off of him. That's the corruption that we're talking about. In other words, after Adam's sin, all mankind was born with a root that was corrupt. And that means that any growth, any action, any work man does has this corruption to it, this sinful bent to it. So depravity tells us about our need. We need the gospel. You can call this moral inability to please God. Inability to obey God with a heart to bring Him glory. No man is interested in that. Natural man is interested in man's glory. He is not interested in God's glory. There's nothing natural about you that wants to please God. The natural you, that is your nature, wants to please you. This is the problem. That is your drive. That is your direction. That is your bent. That is the root. Ephesians 2 put put it this way. You and I are dead in our sins. Romans 8, unable to please God. Romans 3, unable to seek God. We would never choose God. So how do you get a dead man to choose? How do you get a dead man to live, to turn, to want God, to love God more than self? How do you do that? What's the key? 
Now that's what Paul was saying in 1 Timothy 1.15. Look at it for yourself. If you're not there, make sure you're in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He says, I'm a sinner with no ability to choose God. That was my pathway. That was my course. That was my direction. Sin. So there is a great need, and that's what radical corruption tells us. We need a gospel that works outside of our power and strength and wisdom in life. And so we have this first point. But we also, secondly, need to remember, number two, the freeness of the gospel. Don't forget the requirement of the gospel. But also don't forget the freeness of the gospel. Now here's how this works. If if man is unable to choose God, how does he get saved? How does it happen? The Arminian comes around and says, "Well, but he he then he just chooses God." I mean that that's how he does it. I mean he he turns to him and just says yes to God. Why does it have to be so difficult? The Arminian says, "Just say yes." Huh? Really? Have you ever gone into an AA meeting and told somebody, just stop drinking? Just stop it. You know it's not that simple, do you? Don't you? We're talking about how it is that a person gets to that place where he can choose God. What we're talking about here actually is predestination. And when we talk about that, we're talking about how it works. I mean, a Christian can't say, well, I don't believe in predestination. You ever run into people like that? I don't believe in that doctrine. Say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, you do. If you're a Christian, you do. I mean, unless you're just going to cut out portions of your Bible that says he, he predestined us to adoption and so forth. That's just in your Bible. Okay? You can't say, I don't believe that. Unless you're saying, I don't believe the Bible. So you, you do believe that if you're a Christian. The question is not, do you believe in predestination? The question, you know, Romans, 1, Romans 8, 29-30 teaches predestination very clearly. The question is, what do you believe about predestination? Now, let me help us a little bit here. Predestination means choosing a destiny before it happens. Or maybe to say it a different way, having a destiny chosen for you. Now where do all people want their destiny to be? You say, Hawaii. Well, okay. I'm talking about eternally here, okay? Heaven. Heaven. So there is a choosing of that destiny that happened before time. That's what predestined means. A choosing of destination. So what's the big deal? Well, here it is. Who chose your destiny? God or you? I mean, if you say you, then you understand predestination to mean that God looked down the road to see who would choose him and then God predestined you on that basis. Now that is how the how Arminians understand foreknowledge. Okay? That is that God looked down the road to see who would pick him. He gained knowledge from that and then predestined people on that basis. Now if you're a semi-Pelagian, then... You believe that he saw the seekers. If you're just Pelagian, you you believe that he saw the good ones. But if you have more of a belief like Calvin and Luther, you believe that what he saw when he looked down the road is just sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke 19.10 Son of man came to seek and save the lost. The question is, are you lost? 
Do you see yourself that way? Now, is that what the Bible teaches regarding predestination? That God gains knowledge and then he chooses people on that basis. 2 Timothy 1.9 Look at it for yourself. Who has saved us and called us according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. How did God choose whom he wanted to save? Let me help you by putting your eyes on what the Lord says himself. So turn to Romans chapter 9. What we're talking about is the condition for God choosing. What is the condition? Was it conditioned on him looking down the road and seeing? Was it based on a condition depending on our believing? Or was it unconditional based only on God being free to choose whom he wants to be saved? Now, as we look at this, remember all our sinners, Romans 3, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, all, okay? So that means all people are going in this direction to be judged for sin, to hell to be judged for sin. That's the direction all people are going from birth. And you know what will help you, parents? When you hear that baby cry for absolutely no reason, you fed them. They've got all the comforts of the whole world, you know, around them, right? So I've done everything. That would always comfort us. Oh, that's right. We've got to better pray for a soul. Here, that poor baby is crying, has no idea what crazy world they're about ready to head into. And they're going to bring their own source of craziness with them. All men are sinners. Paul knows people are going to struggle with the theology of sovereign grace. So he gives an illustration, and that illustration is Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were born, twins, born to Isaac and Rebekah. And so verse 10, he says, There was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Okay, we start right there. Two normal children. Two normal parents. In fact, you can't get any more equal than this. They were born twins, so no child has the advantage. It's all equal. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now who's the older here? It's Esau by matter of minutes. Esau will serve the younger. Why? Because of choice. God chose it that way. Why? Was it because God looked down the road and saw that Esau would have bad works and that Jacob would have good ones? What's it say here? No. The reason he gives is because of God who calls. In other words, salvation is a calling. God, it is God calling. Now listen, when did God decide that he was going to call Jacob and not Esau. Before birth. Not based on what he could see would happen. So watch this. Look at verse 13. 
just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau hated. You say, can God do that? He did. You say, but why didn't Esau get a fair shot? I mean, why didn't he get a chance? Okay, let's work with that. Take a look at his life. What we find out when we look at his life is he was uh, lazy, indulgent. Hebrews 12 tells us immoral and godless. Hmm. Why should God choose him? You say, well, Jacob wasn't any better. He was deceitful. That's right. So, God's choice wasn't based on works, was it? They both were. It's like having a campaign where you have two people and you don't want to vote for either one of them. I know that's never happened before, but I'm just saying. God's choice wasn't based on works. Both deserved God's judgment. Now Paul says, I can just hear it. You're going to accuse God of being unfair. You're going to do that. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice. There's no unrighteousness with God. Is there? May it never be. I mean, who can accuse God of being unfair? Verse 15. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Who deserves God's mercy? Right? No one. God says, I will give it to who I want to give it to. And it will not be based on performance, and it is not going to be based on potential. It's not going to be based on anything but what I want it to be based on. What is that? What do you want it to be based on? If you could just tell us. Now we're getting to it. What is the key? Verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What's it depend on? God's will. That's it. He said, oh man, I, I wish I could know God's will. You can. He said, really? Yeah, just believe. Just believe. He says, is God's will free? Yeah, that's Paul's point. God is free to show his mercy on whom he wants to. What is predestination or choosing based on then? God's will. And remember, we looked at Titus 1 in that passage and showed you just what the Lord was doing before he made anything. Before times eternal, God made that promise to save the chosen ones. So what is the condition for choosing sinners to be saved? Man's will or God's will? And beloved, listen, history tells us that it's always been about God choosing based on his will. He called Abraham, but what about the other pagan nations? He didn't call them. It wasn't a general call of all nations, and then he decided that only one, you know, returned the mail. He just chose one. He chose Moses, but what about Pharaoh? He didn't choose him. He chose David, what about Saul? David was the man after his own heart. He chose Saul of Tarsus, but what about Pilate or Gamaliel, his teacher? Didn't choose either. He chose Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. He didn't want them. He wanted the one who was a violent aggressor against the church, against Christians, against the gospel. Two more passages to help you understand God's will in salvation. John chapter 1, listen to verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now get this, as many as received him. That's faith, right? 
and as many. Oh, that sounds like a lot of people. Yes. That sounds like whosoever. Yes. Yes. Became the children of God. That's birth. They were born again. Even to those who believe in his name. Wonderful. They chose Jesus, right? Watch this. Verse 13. These are people who were born not of blood. They're talking about spiritually. They were spiritually born not of blood. That means they, they weren't just automatically Christians by being born. You born of the right family or whatever. Nor of the will of the flesh, that is by their own human, you know, abilities. Nor of the will of man. It says, but of God. Verse 13. How does a person get saved? By God's will. It is all conditioned on the freedom of God's will. See, You say, well, what if God hasn't chosen me? Listen. He said, what if, can there be any unfairness in, in this deal here about God? I've already showed you. It's not based on anything but His will and God is good. One more passage to make a point from John 6, verse 64. Jesus had just preached the gospel of sovereign grace. He didn't go looking for the chosen ones to preach it to. He preached it to all of them. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Now get it. He came and preached a sermon to people that he knew would not believe in him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it had been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, as a result, many said, we're out of here. This is hard stuff. It's hard hearing you talk about One's given to the Father. No one comes except they be drawn and all that kind of stuff and election and all that stuff. I don't like that. I'm out of here. So verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to him shall we go. You have words of eternal life. Hey, we don't have anywhere else to go. We don't know. It's not that we totally understand what you're saying, but I mean... We just believe it. We don't know about this election stuff, but we just believe it. They might be hard. These words might be hard to believe, but we're not going anywhere. Why? Because they've been drawn, and they are there because Jesus chose them. You say, are you sure that that's the point? Yeah, listen to John six seventy. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. I mean, he had to explain that for later when they would remember this conversation. They were drawn. What does it mean to be drawn? The Greek word for drawn here is the word helko. It's a fascinating word. As I was studying it this last week, it, um, it literally means to be compelled to do something. Some people have said, well, you know, Arminians say, the word draw there has got to be woo. You know, Jesus is wooing people into the kingdom. No, no. When you apply the word woo to all the different places that this word elko is used, it cannot mean that whatsoever. I mean, it refers to a person who, was, who had fallen into a well You don't woo a person out of a well, right? 
Literally, the word was used to draw water out of a well. You don't woo water out of a well. Please come up here, water. Nice water, you know. It actually was used, that word, to mean to drag. Kittle, in his theological work, says it means to compel by irresistible superiority. Superior to what? Listen, superior to our will. Because we have in our sin an enslaved will. And what he does is he goes and says, hey, I'll help you out of here. I'll get you out of here. Isn't that good? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I I, I couldn't loose myself from these chains if I didn't even want to. And then you showed me. And you did this. His will had to overcome our free will. Do you know what our free will chooses every time? What we want. Why did he have to choose? Because all were going to hell. We're all like lemmings. You ever see those? National Geographic. Little lemmings that are, they run, they just like, they're crazy. These little creatures, they just go right off the cliff. And then they die. Look it up. The little lemmings run. It's amazing. It's kind of sad. But you know, I mean, it's uh they're cute, but you know, uh, sorry guys. If only you could just warn them. No, no, they won't listen to you, you know. But this is us. I mean, we are running to our sin. I mean, we're not kind of going, oh, somebody can only help me from this sin. I just, no, we want it. We drink it up. Job, you who, who drink iniquity like water, he says. We are going in the opposite direction of God, darkness, every time. So God is free with the gospel to choose whom he wants to. And I'm thankful. I needed him to do this for me. And he did. Why did he do it? Out of love. And he showed that love, John 3.16, by sending his son to die on the cross. And so, point number three, the success of the gospel. And we covered this last time. This is the point sometimes called limited atonement. This answers the question, for whom did Jesus die for? And some people in the church say when Jesus died, it was to make salvation possible. It was to make salvation potential. But is Jesus a potential savior? Was the, what was the design of the atonement or the sacrifice of Christ and his blood to make redemption possible or to make it actual? Did it accomplish something? What did redemption accomplish? Potentiality or actuality? Success or possibilities? Let's put the pieces together. If sin came into the world and made man unable to choose God... For salvation to work, there would have to be a system where God chose from sinners unable to choose Him. But what about their sins? I mean, you can't just say, well, they're elect. I mean, God has to deal with the fact that He is holy and righteous and sin needs to be punished, right? So He sent the Son to be punished in our place. We saw that, Romans 8.32. Whose place? John 6. The one's that the Father gave to the Son. John 10, He laid down His life for the, for the sheep. And what this means is that when Jesus died, He was 100% successful. He saves exactly those that he, elect, he elected, all the chosen, all the ones given to the Son to be saved, to be trophies of His grace, to be lavished by that grace and love. All given to the Son, to be saved. Now, are all people that ever lived given to the Son? We know that not to be true. Listen, if you say yes, then what you have to grapple with is, well, then what's wrong with the Son that He couldn't save them all? Right? So we can't say that. He saves exactly all 
that we're giving to him. Jesus does all that he does for the ones given to the Father. Now turn for a moment to John 17. I realize I'm taking you to some other places, but I really want this to come together. Uh, so. Now this is a prayer by Jesus. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave to me out of the world. He's so consistent, isn't he? I love it with what he says. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. I mean, they get it. They understand. They believe. How? The word did its work. So watch this. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like Jesus is making a distinction. He is. You go all the way down to verse 12, and Jesus says, I guarded them, I made sure to keep them safe. I gave them what you wanted, Father. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, for the future believers. What's going to happen? The same thing that happened to the disciples. All that the Father has given will come. Ones that Jesus laid down his life for. See, Now, there is a limited number, and that's the point. Look at verse 9 again. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for them. What? The ones you have given me. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the entire world. You say, no, come on, that's not the Jesus I believe. You've got to deal with the Jesus that's in the Bible. He says, I have been given, there's a plan, there's a master plan, the, the Father, and it was communicated, Titus 1, and, and we all were in agreement on that plan, and and it was to the praise and the glory of His grace, and, and then everything happened, it got put into place, and, and here I am at that place now, incarnation, on the earth, about to go back to heaven in glory, and I'm praying for those ones, not the whole world, those ones. The point of sovereign grace in the gospel, is that it does exactly what God intended. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for his chosen ones to be saved. That's what it means when it says in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have it. Who has it? Verse 4, the chosen ones. Not we could have it. We have it. That's what Paul means in 1 Timothy 2.4 when he says, God desires all men to be saved, verse 6, and that he gave Jesus as the ransom for all, all the ones given to the Son. There's a fourth point we have to see here. Let's get to this one. and Let's call this one the attractiveness of the gospel. Now, let's follow this thing as it, we're, we're just knocking down the dominoes, Okay. Here's the fourth domino. How do you get people that are radically corrupt, who have no desire to seek God by following Jesus Christ, you know, to turn to Him to be saved? How do you get them to Him? Let me say it a different way. The gospel isn't attractive to an unbeliever. Have you noticed that? Maybe you noticed that about yourself. Do you remember that? I remember the early days of being given the gospel. I would shake my head and kind of go, I don't know, it just sounds crazy talk, but I'm doing my thing, trying to work my way to heaven. I 
It was not that gospel that was proclaimed was not attractive. You don't see it. There's no beauty in Christ to the unbeliever. This is the point in the doctrines of grace called irresistible grace. Now, what is this? Let me give you a picture of this. You got two people, they come into this church here, okay? Same age, same life station. And they come into this church and they hear the gospel and one comes away and says, man, that was boring. Didn't make sense. Just a bunch of hot air. That that preacher guy just kept yammering. I was like thinking to myself, come on, why so long? Let's go. And then there's the other guy who heard the same thing and said, I was convicted. I was humbled by that. I felt guilty. I felt like that pastor guy was talking to me. How can that happen? Irresistible grace. That's how. This is sometimes called effectual grace. Now turn to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter one, verse three. Paul tells Timothy, I remember you always in my prayers. Verse four. I remember your tears, the sincerity of your faith. Verse 5, I remember your mom and your grandma who shared the gospel with you. Verse 7, I remember the spirit of power and love and discipline that God gave you when he saved you. Verse 8, I'm calling you not to be ashamed of the gospel. Later in chapter 3, a gospel that you learned, that you became convinced of, that you knew from childhood because of your mom and grandma, and they just reminded you of it day after day. How do they teach them? Look at Second Timothy 3.15. They gave Timothy the scripture. Look at it. Which was the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Huh. Even the faith that you have to believe in is in Christ Jesus. You get it when he gives it to you. In other words, they did all this stuff for you, giving you the gospel, pouring out their lives for you. That Why? So that God might lead you to salvation through faith in Christ. In other words, if you belong to Him, that's the work that He has to do. All grandma and mom did was just give you the message and the life example. God did the rest. He did the work of turning your, of opening your eyes, making you see that you needed what grandma and mom were given, giving you. That's irresistible grace. This is Titus two eleven. You can turn over there, just like a page or two to the right. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age and so forth. In other words, God's grace got deep inside and started teaching us internally to turn away from sin and to seek a sensible life following Christ. And you said yes. Listen, beloved, at some point the gospel becomes attractive to sinners that are elect. At some point. And I tell you, some of us are just, you know, hard-headed, obstinate. And it just, we need the, the, the sledgehammer of the gospel over and over and over. And finally, okay. Remember John, in John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. How will totally depraved sinners come to you, Jesus? John 6.44, no one can come to the Father, excuse me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. He draws you 
There it is again. He opens your eyes to see that Jesus is attractive. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So many illustrations all throughout history of this very thing. Paul was heading to Damascus to kill Christians when God struck him with light and he fell to the ground and then God saved him and Paul felt like what he called scales that were falling from his eyes. Not literal scales, but what he meant was his eyes were opened. In Acts 16, who could forget Lydia? She was by the river minding her own business, a wealthy woman probably very satisfied with her own life. Yes, she was a God-fearer, but when Paul comes around and preaches the gospel, listen, Acts sixteen fourteen, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now she had a high opinion about God before them, but her heart had to be opened by God so that she would turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Or how about Augustine? His mother Monica and shared the gospel. He refused it. He, he tried to live moral and failed at it. Tried to live righteously, failed. He began to womanize. He slept with ladies. He had a child and, and a wedlock. And then one day he was in a courtyard and heard a child singing in Latin this, Take up and read. Huh. Take up and read. So... He found the nearest Bible and opened it up randomly. And it plopped open to Romans 13, 14. Well, 13 and 14, where it said this, Let us behave properly as of the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He puts on the Lord Jesus immediately right after that and becomes one of the most instrumental followers of Christ to the church up to this day. See, how did that happen? Some kid. He didn't even know. Singing a song. To be clear, his mother had shared the gospel with him over and over. It didn't hit his heart until then. Irresistible grace. That's how God gets totally depraved sinners who have been chosen by Him before the foundation of the world, who have been purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross to be saved. What we're talking about is something that's called monergism. Whoa. Another one of those isms. Maybe you're like me. You don't feel like you're an ism expert. You know, you kind of let all the other people talk about the isms. But... This one's helpful. I mean, two words that, that mean this. Um, One-way energy or a solo work. Or you could call it solo activity. Mono, alone or solo. Energase, the word from which we get, get energy from or activity. This is not synergy. Synergy is a work by... At least a couple of parts. A cooperative work. This is not that. This is not a cooperation. This is not a work by two. This is not a work that is agreed upon by two. This is monergistic. This is work one direction by one. This is solo work. There are a lot of illustrations to make the point. Sometimes scripture says salvation is like a birth. John 3, you must be born again. Now, what happens when you're born? You remember that? I say, nope. No. Nope. You had nothing to do with your birth. You benefited, but you did nothing. Not your power, right? Not your energy. Let me give you another illustration or another analogy. Resurrection. Remember that? Lazarus, John 11. How did Lazarus get out of that tomb? He was just dead. Four days. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. By the way, have you ever wondered why four? 
Well, because the common belief at the time was that within a 72-hour period, three days, there's stuff going on, the body, blood, so forth. But you get to day four, and if that thing has not, nothing's happened, that's just dead. That's what you call dead dead, right? He was dead dead in everybody's eyes. And Jesus made sure that everybody would know that's dead dead. Come forth. He had nothing to do with it, and that's the point. He just received the power to be alive. His body went where Jesus said to go, come forth. Remember Ezekiel 37, can these dead bones live? Say to these dead bones, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to live, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Huh. That's monergism. That's effectual calling. That's regeneration. That's how it all happened at salvation. That's the gospel of sovereign grace. Or how about Ezekiel 36 where it says that God is bringing a salvation where he's going to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The heart of stone, lifeless, hard, impenetrable. That's us before salvation, right? Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's God changing us so that we might be saved. You have eyes opened so that you might believe. That's what this point is saying. Making This is God making us a new creation. Now as we close, what is the evidence that the gospel of sovereign grace is true? It is this, that there is a power to make it last. And you see it in the life And so, point number five, the strength of the gospel. What is the strength of the gospel? That true believers will endure to the end. The Arminians come around and say, a person chooses their salvation, makes themselves alive, and uh, cooperates with God, that is, and then has to make sure he keeps himself on the road so that he doesn't lose his salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a true believer, what does he say, Matthew? By your endurance you will be saved. Faithfulness is what we're talking about here. John 10, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. We're talking about the perseverance of the saints. The strength of it is that it not only gets a person in, but keeps him to the end. This is grace that makes sure that that person finishes the race. It is an eternal security that comes with endurance to make it to the end. Now let's close our time in 2 Timothy 2. Look at 2 Timothy 2. Verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, he saved saved you by grace. Be strong by that grace. Verse 2, be faithful and train others to be faithful. Verse 3, live the Christian life like a good soldier. How do you make it in the military? You endure all suffering to get to the goal, right? Stay disciplined. Verse 5, live the Christian life like an athlete where you play by the rules, don't go out of bounds. Verse 6, live the Christian life like a hard-working farmer. You live by the fruit your work produces. See, and then verses 8 and 9, you remember Jesus Christ. Even if you're chained and silenced like Paul, you remember the word of God isn't imprisoned. God does his work through the word. And you just keep going. 
Verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of the chosen because the Father has given souls to Jesus to save. And Paul says, I just have to be faithful. God will do the saving. So what's the message? Stay faithful. Verse 12, if we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, what that is saying is that you might struggle, but God will never struggle helping us to be faithful. There are some that eventually reveal that they were never true believers, but the true believers will always have God's faithfulness right there. And if you want a real picture of this kind of faithfulness, look at chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, look at verse 6. I'm already poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's just incredible. And what we're really working through is this question, will a Christian stay saved? And the doctrines of grace says, yes. If salvation depends on you, then you have to keep yourself saved. But if it depends on Him, then God will keep you saved. Is that true? Look at verse 16 of Second Timothy 4. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May not be counted against them. But then he says this, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How can you say that, Paul, with such certainty, with such confidence? Because it didn't depend on him. God will keep him saved to the very end. In fact, in that very passage we've referred to over and over in John 6, Jesus said, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, how can he do that if there's a chance that you might not even be there because you've lost your salvation? Jesus will not make that statement unless the very ones given to him are the very ones he's going to make sure end up in the resurrection at the last day. Now, why? Why are you telling all this? Why is this system really important? Why are these five points important? One, one word for you as we bring this to a close. Glory. For glory not your own. Have you noticed that in all of this, God gets the glory? It's what he did, what he did, what he did, what he did. God put together a system that would bring him glory and would make the point to you and I that we need to be caught up in that very thing in bringing God glory. Why? Because God knows He is the very best thing for us. Well, that's the first part on how to handle attack on the church. How do you do it? Hey, remember how you got in. I'm safe in the arms of God. Man, if He put me, this is His deal, He put me in here, He's got this. And that's good stuff. Who gets glory for that kind of gospel? Secondly, though, you should remember what you need to do once you're in here. He said, oh, good, tell us. I'll do that next week. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And, um, you know, giving us, I think of John 6 and all those people that said, 
these words are so hard. Who can believe this? And, uh, and even, I, I suppose, even the disciples after you said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And when they said, Lord, where would we go? It seems as though, Lord, they were telling you these words are hard. They recognize they didn't know why they believed, but that they believed. We come to you, Father, with just simple faith and belief. And we thank you, dear Father, that that's just how you ordained it. That's just how you wanted it. Faith that is in Christ Jesus. I pray you would help us with this. And Lord, receive the glory. Receive the glory in all of this. And will you do your work in saving more people here in Fallon for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.